This is WPRB in Princeton, New Jersey, community-supported, independent radio. And now at 5 p.m., it's WPRB News and Culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. About a year ago, this incarnation of News and Culture aired its first episode, a post-lockdown reboot with new reporters, a new style, and a commitment to serve New Jersey and Pennsylvania with high-quality, free-form reporting in the arts, culture, and public affairs. It was our returns episode. And now a year out, we've been thinking. It's one thing to consider a genesis, a creation out of nothing or out of the ashes of something long gone. But to consider the end of something can be a far more daunting task. Every ending is a little death, a little reminder of the inevitability of our own demise, the only certainty we've got. This is a certainty that can be crushing, but it can also enlighten and embolden. Knowing an end can give meaning to a process, give wholeness to a fractured being, and allow for the start of something brand new. With this in mind, and remembering that truly nothing scares dedicated servants of community radio journalism, News & Culture today presents you with our Endings episode. Stories that confront terminations, doors closing, and fades to black, whether they end with a bang or with a whimper. We've got some great stories for you tonight. Anna Salvatore and Clara McWeeny visit an estate sale, meet its proprietors, explore its wares, and question the way objects live on even after we pass. Natalia Maydeek and Nevani Rachemelu speak to Professor Anthony Grafton at Princeton University, eminent historian and soon-to-be retiree, about the end he sees coming to his academic career. Tommy Golding and Henry Moses go through some of their favorite endings in fiction, and consider what made these conclusions so satisfying. Malika J. Singh does a deep dive analysis of the endings featured on the TV show The Bachelor, from breakups via ghosting and gossip, to rose ceremonies to post-credit scenes. And Adam Sanders goes to the site of many an ending, a cemetery, with someone very experienced in the unexpected history and beauty to be found in these spaces of memory. Stick around, we'll be right back. WPRB wants you to know that if you live, work, go to school, or pay taxes in the city of Philadelphia, you should sign up for a free Library of Philadelphia library card. You can gain online access to ebooks, audiobooks, movies, music, digital learning resources, online programming, and much more. To apply for a card or learn more, visit freelibrary.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported, independent radio. You're listening to WPRB News & Culture. Next up, Anna Salvatore and Clara McQueeny visit an estate sale, meet its proprietors, explore its wares, and question the way objects live on even after we pass. In many ways, estate sales can feasibly be conceived of as at once a sort of ending and a sort of beginning. They traditionally stem from the death of a property owner, an opportunity for the deceased heirs or inheritors to pass off some of the possessions they have no interest in. But an estate sale can also mark the beginning of a new life for an object, a vintage cookie jar, for example, or Budweiser cups, or beautiful porcelain dolls verging just on the edge of terrifying can find a home in the patrons of estate sales, and their journey as an object continues. These are just a few of the items we stumbled upon on our own journey to experience a true estate sale. This Saturday, myself, Anna Salvatore, and our dear friend and WPRB supporter, Catalina Posada, ventured outside the orange bubble that is Princeton. Earlier in the week, on admittedly my first foray into the worlds of Craigslist, I found an estate sale located in East Brunswick, just a 30-minute drive from campus. Or it would have been if I hadn't typed in the address in Craigslist. That's really gonna haunt okay. you guys forever. Hello. It has haunted us. This is Clara McQueenie. This is Anna Salvatore. I've been taken hostage. This is Kata. Yeah. We are currently in an Uber in East Brunswick, maybe New Brunswick, New Jersey, embarking on a journey. To get to an estate sale. To get to an estate sale. For the endings episode of WPRB to kick off the new season. However, we went to the wrong four Oxford. We went to the wrong four Oxford. 
The estate sale, which we found on Craigslist, is at 4 Oxford Road. And I, in all of my expert planning and attention to detail, typed in 4 Oxford Street in the Uber. Now, dedicated listeners might remember um, an episode Anna and I also did together on a lovely man named Ed who found love late in life. He was in our Valentine's Day episode, if you want to go back and listen to that. And I'll also take the fall for this one, although Anna was still there, but I was certain his name was Eugene. And so we made an episode and aired it in which I called him Eugene. Anna called him Eugene. We all called him Eugene throughout. Um... We're going to live with that. We're going to live with that forever. Is this mistake as consequential for WPRB? No. Is it really inconvenient? It sure is. It sure is. is. We'll be back, um, hopefully, when we reach our final destination of the estate sale. Hopefully. Hopefully, hopefully hopefully? this journey will come to an end. Yeah, I hope so, too. It'll be an odyssey. We'll return to where we came from. It'll be an odyssey. You can also listen to WPRB episode on journeys, I think, right? You certainly can. You certainly can. Okay. Eventually, we made it to our final destination. A ranch-style home in a residential neighborhood, adorned with a neon sign taped to the door boasting a state sale, contrasted by the large, private property, keep out, sign taped to the window. But we had taken too many Ubers to be deterred. Upon entering the home, we were met by Cindy and her sweetheart, George, along with what seemed to be thousands of antique goods, ranging from glassware to old guitars to full china sets. The home itself belonged to Cindy's mother, as did all of the goods. The pure abundance of objects is truly hard to describe, so we'll let Cindy try, as well as give you a bit of background on how the estate sale came to be. Where did you acquire them? My mom. Oh, yeah. 60 years of my mom's collecting. Really? Yeah. And would she collect around, like, New Jersey? Yeah, in New Jersey. No, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And then she sold a little bit down English Town, but not much. Mm-hmm. And we went to the market when we had that. And then she had a bad stroke, and I took care of her for 10 years and stopped mm-hmm. teaching. I was a special ed teacher, so I stopped teaching to take care of her. And she bought on the weekends, so. Oh, I know. We had an for a couple hours a day, and she would take her on Saturdays. And one day, we had an entire room at the condominium where I live. And we lived there with her, you know, with the hospital bed and all. That higher room of stuff that she gathered, she bought on the weekends. On that right? weekend, wow. Yeah. And we brought it down to show her, like, look, Mom, you see all the stuff you're buying? Mm-hmm. This is crazy. Do you realize how... She was like a kid that came to show her. She was so happy. Uh-huh. Look at it. She was so happy to see her stuff and got to look at it right. again. It was the worst thing I could have heard. <laughs> <laughs> but she was so happy. She was. No, I'm glad she was happy. But I just it backfired. I just can't kick out Perhaps due to the sheer abundance of goods her mother left behind, Cindy has been running this estate sale for quite some time. Months now. The sales longevity has given her a keen sense of the power and eminence of estate sales, as well as their ins and outs. At this point, she's a true expert on both estate sales and their patrons. Some people want things for garage sale prices, you know, and right. this is like really good stuff. So, yeah, what's what's the difference between an estate sale and garage sale prices? Uh, garage sale prices are like a dollar, five dollars, yeah. things like that, mm-hmm. you know. Like I put five dollars on the um, Facebook ad, because whenever I looked at them, somebody would put a dollar, they put five dollars. A dollar meant things were cheap. Five dollars meant they were cheaper. They're not free. Mm-hmm. They're not practically free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still, there are some things Cindy would never sell, no matter the price. I look stuff up and then, you know, negotiate. You know, depends yeah. upon how much I love it and I want to take it home. Yeah, so are you, is there anything really special that you wouldn't sell? Yeah. Uh, there's all the lamps I am. The, like, um... <sighs> Art Nouveau, mm. there's some Art Deco and Art Nouveau lamps, but we've sold some too, you know, and that's an Art Deco lamp there. See the lady mm-hmm. holding the globe mm-hmm. up? Mm-hmm. She's... Oh, that's really cool. So crazy in prices though. Somebody's selling, selling them on eBay for $1,250 each, and then somebody else is selling one for $400. First Dibs, which is an antique site, they're really expensive, but you get knowledge when you go there. They know all the different things, so you go there just to look up. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the number one. ST. Yeah. Dot. Yeah, you, just you know, I wouldn't charge her. that much, so, you know, yeah. when things are that 
You have to go. Varied. Yeah, that varied, and you have to go towards the lower, the lower prices. Price. Yeah. A few of the objects, though not many, belong to Cindy's father, including an impressive collection of guitars. Oh, she was a school guard, actually. Oh, she was. She was a school guard, and my dad was a musician. But these are a tenth. As we said before, the sheer number of objects piled in Cindy's mother's home is astounding. In many ways, these antiques capture her life, her interests and passions, the things that brought her joy, and the stuff she found beautiful. I'll let Anna and Kata give you a sense of visiting the sale from an outsider's perspective. On the desk, there's what looks to be perfume, Amorige de Givenchy, Paris, next to a, a big white. Fascinating. I'm just narrating for the radio. Kata, what are you seeing? Excellent. I see a beautiful array of cookie jars. We have the cookie monster, a doll, a taxi. A bunch of jars. To fully experience the estate sale in all of its glory, we had to make a purchase. True to our status as college students, we were first drawn to a set of vintage Budweiser glasses. How much are these cups right here? Uh, which one? This the Budweiser cup. They're set? I don't know. I think there's only two. Yeah, me too. Five, you can have them for, you want them for yourself, $5 for the two of them. Okay, I think I'll do $5 for the two of them. Okay. Yeah. Though we could get a sense of the person Cindy's mother had been through her belongings, we also got to hear from Cindy herself about her own life, from college to teaching to eventually caring for her mother when she had a stroke and cancer. What are your majors? I'm an English major. And? History for me. Economics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What did, did you study teaching? Uh, or? No, psychology first. I oh, have a bachelor's in psych, and then I got into two or three schools for graduate school that I applied for, but I didn't really have the money. There was Wagen was in office then, and he do, wasn't offering student loans, so nice. I was doing everything myself. So then I went back to school for uh, special ed to become a special ed teacher. Yeah. Oh. I did that for a while, and then my mom had a big stroke, and I took care of her. And there's a lot of overlap in the yeah in the science in the social in the softer sciences. And in help with my mom. Yeah. You know, so. 100%. Yeah, she was so smart. Oh. Finally, Cindy reflected a bit on what exactly it means to hold an estate sale. Though inherently consumerist, these sales can be deeply cathartic, providing people with a chance to contemplate a single life or narrative, passing along sentimental goods while preserving memories all the same. Is having an estate sale, like, emotionally tricky? Mm -hmm. I took care of her diaper and everything for 10 years, so. Mm -hmm. A couple years after that, just to get myself together was the work. But no, because it, it was, I, I think about her every day, you know, there's with her, I'm here, no matter where I am, no matter what's going on, I just miss her so much, because she was like part of me. Yeah. You know, you just, you know, she had cancer in the end, it was like intensive care in the living room, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Estate sales are complex. They're emotionally weighty and trying, signaling and ending, even despite the ways in which the objects may live on, in college dorm rooms or elsewhere. So often are we concerned with the intangible ways in which our legacy lives on. Perhaps we should all embrace our shallower sides and consider the physical things we will leave behind. What objects do we want to represent a life? If you're interested in stopping by the estate sale to check out the antiques or even just to chat with Cindy and George, you can find them at 4 Oxford Road in East Brunswick, New Jersey from 9 to 5 on Saturday the 18th and 9 to 3 on Sunday the 19th. The sales are stocked weekly and prices are being reduced. For WPRB, this was Clara McQueenie and Anna Salvatore. WPRB wants you to know that if you're a renter in Philadelphia, you should know your rights. PhillyTenant.org has everything you need to know about your rights and obligations as a tenant in Philadelphia. You can find information about security deposits, leases, evictions, repair, lead testing, housing assistance, and much more. That's phillytenant.org. A live help for low-income Philadelphia renters is also available by phone 9 a.m. through 7 p.m. Monday through Friday at 267-443-2500. This has been a public service announcement from WPRV, Princeton, community-supported independent radio. You're listening to WPRB News and Culture. Coming up, Natalia Maydeek and Nevani Rachamalu speak to Professor Anthony Grafton at Princeton University, eminent historian and soon-to-be retiree, about the NTC's coming to his academic career. Today we talked to Anthony Grafton, 
a professor of the history department at Princeton who has been teaching here since 1975. We wanted to celebrate his colorful career here and have him reflect on his upcoming retirement. Professor Grafton studied at the University of Chicago for both his undergrad and graduate studies. He then taught at Cornell for a short time, focusing on teaching Renaissance European history before coming to Princeton. I did a bunch of other jobs along with the teaching. I was the head of European Cultural Studies, which was a certificate program. I founded the freshman seminar program and ran it for 10 years. Um, I was head of humanities, um, which is a kind of umbrella organization of all the humanities departments and is what European Cultural Studies and other programs are kind of and uh, that's where they have their niches. So I did a bunch of that kind of uh, that kind of academic administration. I'm way too disorganized ever to have been the chair of my department, which is a very big and very busy department. So no one ever considered that for a moment. But uh, but I enjoyed all those other jobs, and uh, it was it was really fun to try to think of new things to do and new ways to do things. Professor Grafton's research focuses on intellectual history, and he is particularly interested in the history of reading. He expands on other niche interests of his that have informed his research. My, my research is mostly about um, intellectual history, the history of science, the history of his, scholarship and history and other fields. And I was always interested in how people did things in the past. So how past scientists did astronomy, which was one of the first things I worked on, or astrology, which was also very popular, and how historians and other kinds of scholars did their work. So how they learned to do things. So my most uh, best known book, and the only one that really sold a lot of copies, is a book on the history of the footnote which sounds like, I think, probably the dullest topic in the universe. I mean, footnotes are horrible. And what could a history of footnotes be? But in fact, I kind of got inspired to do this. The difference between history as it's written in the modern world and history as it was written in, say, the ancient world or the Middle Ages, one of the big differences, you have footnotes. So you, you put in the references that show where you're getting the facts, the names, the dates, the insights that you, you have, and anyone else can replicate what you did and see if they agree with you and, or believe you and not. So I was once inducted into a German organization for scholars and artists and others. So I was working on the footnote and a journalist, very nice, a very brilliant, very wonderful person came and she said, so what are you working on? And I said, astrology. And she said, oh, that's boring. We already know about that. Anything else? And I said, well, there's the footnote. Footnotes, that's so interesting. So I wrote a book about the footnote and it was a book that was translated and believe it or not, it was translated into many languages. He then spoke on how working with students has made for a rewarding and fulfilling career. Undergraduates are really brave, and they'll kind of look at a couple of things and put together a thesis. And when, you're, when you go to graduate school, the first thing they do is beat that out of you and teach you that you can't do that, you don't have enough data, you don't have enough information, you have to be very guarded, you have to cite the names of four important people in every sentence, and undergraduates don't do that, which is one of the reasons why it's, it's, really, it's really fun to work with them and see them working with materials and coming up with really cool and interesting conclusions. Uh, working with graduate students, they just open your eyes to fields that you never thought of working on historically. The conversation then moved to how he made the monumental decision to end his long career. I began thinking about retirement in my mid-60s and thinking, you know, when is this going to happen? And I basically kind of thought I would retire around uh, around the age of 70, but a couple of things happened. My wife was very much anti-retirement. She just wanted to go on working forever. And she actually basically laid down her tools and, and turned out to have uh, um, stage four pancreatic cancer. So she passed away quite quickly and didn't have to have a retirement, which for her was a mercy. She would have hated it. Um, I'm, I think, quite happy at the thought of retirement. There's a lot of books I'd like to read that I haven't read and a lot of things I want to do. I really like teaching, and one of the things you're offered if you want it is to go down to half time for two or three years, teach two courses, 
uh, and have you know half or more of your time for yourself. But that didn't really appeal to me. I really like teaching uh, teaching courses. I'm teaching four courses this year. I only need I only have to teach three, and I keep wondering when someone's going to find out and discipline me for teaching an extra course. But I you know, I, I like I like the teaching. So I thought, well, you know, fading out is not for me. I'm just going to teach full time and then come to a full stop. He talks about what he's going to do outside of Princeton. I'm going to move. Um, I'm actually going to live in Brooklyn. Uh, and I have bought a two-family house with my daughter and her husband and their daughter. Uh, and I am going to be uh, a grandpa in a multi-family house, which I'm really looking forward to. And that's something that I've never, you know, we were always working and it would be even better if my granddaughter were a little younger. She's already nine, so she's not going to be a, a tot, but we have a great relationship and I'm really looking forward to getting to know her much better as she goes goes through um, high school, middle school and high school. And I'm also going to spend more time in D.C. where my son and his wife and their two children live. And though I won't be living in the same house with them, but I'm hoping to, again, to get to know their kids better when I can just get up, pick up and go to Washington for a week, uh, which is which is harder here. I mean, it's it'll my cat won't be worried because there will be people in the house and people to feed him. But I don't have any big ambitions for scholarship. I want to read some things. Um, I might work on some of my um, languages a little bit just for fun. Uh, and do some reading in languages, which I don't read as well as I would like, Spanish, which I read, but not well. And uh, and uh, maybe maybe try to learn Portuguese. There's wonderful Renaissance texts in Portuguese. So uh, th those are my ambitions. They're relatively modest. The other thing I want to do is uh, live in a city. I can shop the way you shop in a city where you go to this guy who has the really good fruit and that guy who has the really good vegetables and the other guy who's the really good halal butcher and the Italian shop with the great cheese and it's all 10 blocks away and then I can walk home. There are coffee shops on every block and uh, there's a, a you know an independent bookshop. I mean, everything I, I kind of need so it's not a not a big dramatic retirement. I'm not planning a new career. Princeton's been a wonderful supportive home for a very long time and continues to be. And uh, you know it, it will be uh, it'll be hard to leave, but I think uh, I, I think it's ending time is a time of life when family are really important, and it seems to me that's that's a a good way to make that choice. From WPRB, this has been Natalia Medik and Navani Rachamalu. WPRB wants you to know about Mural Arts Philadelphia. Mural Arts Philadelphia, the nation's largest public art program, exists to provide transformative experiences, progressive public discourse, and economic stimulus to the city of Philadelphia through participatory public art that beautifies, advocacy that inspires, and educational programming and employment opportunities that empower. Take a tour and hear some of the stories behind more than 4,000 murals that grace our city. Learn more by following at Mural Arts on Twitter and Instagram and by visiting muralarts.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. You're listening to WPRB News and Culture. Next up, Tommy Golding and Henry Moses go through some of their favorite endings in fiction and consider what made these conclusions so satisfying. Anything that has been written has an end. Novels of all forms of writing are most self-conscious of this fact. Finishing a novel is both a mental and physical experience. The story ends on the page in a flourish of plot, solution, resolution, or language. But this narrative conclusion is followed by the physical setting aside of the paper and ink object that has accompanied the reader on their journey of reading across days, weeks, or months, in spurts of reading between classes, late at night after all the discussion posts have been sent in, 
in deep bouts of focus in the library as their class readings go untouched. The cover, the smell, the feel of the pages become familiar. The final sentence is a farewell to these textual familiarities. Any final sentence is colored with the knowledge that we are in our final moments with the text, the voice of the author, the comforting weight of the novel in our hands. The final sentence is a silencing, an extinguishing of narrative force, and the start of a new chapter, not for the novel, but for the reader themselves, as they choose another book and author to animate with their reading. A so-called novel ending is sort of a contradiction, no? Novus, the Latin term for new, morphed into novello in Italian, and was then attached to storia, to mean new story. This then morphed into the recognizable novella. Still, though, it was used in late Middle English to connote a sense of novelty or piece of news. So what is this weird relationship between the new and the termination of the new? What is the novel's relation to the new, and how does the fact of its definiteness and finiteness in book form work against this conception? If anyone has tried to write anything, you know how hard it is to end it. This, among other reasons, makes the novel ending an enigma. What is it? How does one do it? Thinking of this theme of endings, we wanted to explore some of our favorite novel endings. The final chapter of James Joyce's masterpiece, Ulysses, begins and ends with the most positive word in the English language. Joyce said this about his own thought process for writing the end of his novel. The chapter is a soliloquy from Molly Bloom's stream of consciousness, and even after all the tumult of the day's odyssey through Dublin, it ends with an opening. Yes is a sort of opening, a welcoming and continuation into something more. The final chapter begins, yes, because he never did a thing like that before as asked to get his breakfast in bed with a couple of eggs. And many thousands of word la words later it ends, yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. The chapter is a tirade of yeses, opening the scope of the novel into the world. It's hard not to be affirmed and uplifted when reading yes, 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 over and over again in melodic fashion. It's inspiring. It grants one the space to affirm their own thinking and approach the world with open arms and mind. This is an anti-ending in the supreme sense. Rather than closing the novel neatly and calmly, it rejects the notion of endings and throws complication into the rest of the novel as well. It's Molly Bloom's perspective that ends the no novel, not Stephen Dedalus's or Leopold Bloom's, the other dominant speakers of the novel. The yeses grant a continuation of the scope of the novel in more ways than one. Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude is an epic spanning generations, telling the story of an eccentric family across hundreds of years of magically distorted South American history. The early pages of the novel flower with unforgettable characters. The ancient gypsy Melchiades, bringing advanced technologies from overseas to the primitive village Macondo. The gruff Colonel Aureliano Buendia, a revolutionary who fights 33 wars and loses them all. The blind matriarch Ursula, who navigates entirely on her memory of everything that has ever happened in the house. The pages fly by with colorful adventures, exploration, duels and love affairs, wars, and revolution. By the end of the novel, this is all far in the past. The earlier generations, the heroic generations of the novel, have died off, leaving behind so many pale copies, sharing only first and last names in common with their more energetic ancestors. There is a lot of sitting around the house, shuffling through the belongings of those who have died, waiting for something to happen. Sometimes the house empties out, leaving only a couple of distant relatives to warily share the space around each other. The house crumbles and rots, and no one really cares. At one point, it rains for four years consecutively. Nobody seems to notice. How to end such a book, which for its last hundred or so pages is already petering out so meekly. Here's how Garcia Marquez does it. One of these late stage Buendias loses his wife, who is also his aunt and child in childbirth, leaving him as the last surviving Buendia. Aureliano, that's his name, wanders in a trance into the old study, 
where he finishes translating and deciphering a manuscript that had been left by the gypsy Melchiades in the earliest days of the village. As he decodes the text, he realizes that it describes in advance everything that Macondo and the family have gone through over the previous decades. He skips ahead to the very moment he is living through, as he fails to notice the house disintegrating around him. I'll let Garcia Marquez tell the rest. Before reaching the final line, however, he had already understood that he would never leave that room, for it was foreseen that the city of mirrors or mirages would be wiped out by the wind and exiled from the memory of men at the precise moment when Aureliano Babylonia would finish deciphering the parchments and that everything written on them was unrepeatable since time immemorial and forevermore, because races condemned to 100 years of solitude did not have a second opportunity on earth. For WPRB News and Culture, this has been Tommy Goulding and Henry Moses. WPRB wants you to know about Table to Table. They are a community-based food rescue program in northern New Jersey that collects fresh and perishable food that would otherwise be wasted and delivers it to organizations that serve the hungry in Bergen, Essex, Hudson, and Passaic counties. They rescue this healthy food from about 150 donors, supermarkets, food distributors, restaurants, and commercial kitchens, and deliver it the same day, free of charge to over 250 community organizations, including food pantries, shelters, daycare and after-school programs, senior adult centers, and programs serving the working poor. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit tabletotable.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. You're listening to WPRB News and Culture. Next up, Malika J. Singh does a deep dive analysis of the endings featured on the TV show The Bachelor, from breakups via ghosting and gossip to rose ceremonies to post-credit scenes. Have you ever seen a woman turn to a flamingo who's nibbling on her ear and say, hey, I haven't gotten a lot of love this week, so I'm taking all I can get. This isn't the start of a silly dad joke or the plot of an ancient myth or the beginnings of my insane ramblings. These are the depths of desperation the women of The Bachelor are driven to, fighting for one man, a potential husband, with 29 other women will do that to a person. Every episode of The Bachelor ends with a rose ceremony. Iconically, whichever hot single has been chosen to be the bachelor or bachelorette of the season calls up the contestants on the show by first name and asks that fateful question, will you accept this rose? To my knowledge, which is admittedly only the current season, the women always say yes. The women who do not receive a rose have to leave the Los Angeles mansion they are all hosted in. If we were to try to assess The Bachelor from normal, non-reality TV show dating standards, this type of ending would be the classical ghost. The vast majority of the time, the women who do not get a rose are not told in advance, do not get let down easy, are refused the satisfaction of knowing what went wrong. Especially when it comes to the first episode, where by the end of the first night, half the women are gone. Instead of hearing their names during the rose ceremony, the women who are to leave just get silence. But the lack of rose is not the only affliction that dooms women to end their courtship with the bachelor, who by the way, this season is Zach Shellcross, a finance bro working at a tech company in Austin and who's been received by Bachelor Nation as a boring bachelor. By the way, I'm about to discuss some mild spoilers for this season. So how else do women have to abandon their romances with boring bachelor Zach Shalcross? 
This season, two women have left who felt they were not getting enough attention or love from Zach, and after talking to him, found he could not affirm strongly that he wanted them there. Two others left because of in-house drama between the women. One was reported to be mean to the other woman, an assessment I think was a little overblown, and one was reported to be drooling over reaping potential Instagram followers from the show's audience. That, too, seemed exaggerated, told to Zach by someone who'd heard from someone who'd heard from the supposed cloud chaser. It's like receiving a hey girly DM from someone else you're also dating. Although the source wasn't the most unbiased, reputable one, she was speaking to one of Zach's greatest fears, that a girl would say all the right things on the show, but be there for clout. Most of the women, though, have been great. In the most recent episode, there was a sequence in which Zach talks to about six women back-to-back and says such sweet things as, since day one, there's something really special. And with you, every time we've spent has been easy, and I haven't even had to think twice. Another girl says to Zach, whenever I'm with him, it feels like I'm the only girl in the world. A bit ironic for someone who's dating him alongside dozens of others. Honestly, this sequence was chilling. Isn't it every cishet monogamous girl's greatest nightmare to see her man flirting with another girl, saying the very same things or things of the very same flavor, he says to her. I'm not the first person to point this out. The Bachelor, despite embodying such classical cis-heteronormativity most of the time, featuring only the hottest, skinniest women with the most flowing hair and glowing skin, is a show that is really quite queer. When you think about it, the show that's captured America's heart for decades now is essentially about polyamorous situationships. But of course, this show still follows the marriage plot. By the end of the show, the bachelor or bachelorette will most likely propose to the final contestant. And no matter what, there's always a final rose at the rose ceremony. There can only be so many roses, only so much potential for love, for a lifelong, exclusive partnership. One of the women who was eliminated this week gave a teary confessional to camera. It's going to hurt waking up in the morning and just having another day alone when all I want is someone just to finally be there for me. As much as some of the women say they're only there for Zach, only agreed to do the show when they found out he's the bachelor, that they could see only him as their future husband, at the end of the day, they really just need a husband, someone to be there for them. But the show is not about finding them a husband. It's about finding Zach a wife and about those potential wives fighting it out. I know I said the rose ceremony is how each episode ends, but actually there's usually a silly, goofy post-credit. One particularly memorable one from this season involved the ladies discussing Kegel exercises. In the most recent episode's post-credit scene, some of the women are interacting with the flamingos at luxury resort Baja Mar in the Bahamas, where they host morning yoga among the flamingos. One of the ladies mimes hearing gossip from one of the birds. She did not. She said that? And he gave the rose to who? We at home are left waiting till the next episode to find out just who gets the rose and who gets ghosted. For WPRB, I'm Malika J. Singh. You're listening to WPRB News and Culture. Next, Adam Sanders goes to the site of many an ending, a cemetery, with someone very experienced in the unexpected history and beauty to be found in these spaces of memory.
It's a Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock p.m., and I'm standing with Ben, a classmate of mine, at the entrance to Princeton Cemetery, a massive graveyard spanning much of the town's core. This is my first time here, but it's not Ben's first time in Princeton Cemetery. In fact, Ben has been here a number of times. He's been to many cemeteries many times. It's actually kind of his thing. My name is Ben Woodard. I'm 19. I'm a sophomore at Princeton, currently deciding between history and politics for my concentration. I'm originally from Southern West Virginia. So I've been interested in cemeteries for a long time, which always kind of weirds people out. They you know, generally associate cemeteries with like, you know, like goth culture, or like Halloween or something like that. But I think they're much more interesting than that. The interesting thing about cemeteries to me is the stories that are told here. I got into them through looking into genealogy, looking into my own family history, how that shaped, you know, my family as it is now, me as I am now, my community as it is now. And I think cemeteries are a particularly special place um, for that investigation. I think Ben is right here about two things. One, an interest in cemeteries, historical or not, is often seen as weird or occult or perverse. But number two, it shouldn't be that way. And it hasn't always been that way. There is a beauty to the cemetery, a resting place for people gone, and a monument to their memory. It's a place of life's ending, but also of history's beginning. So I asked Ben to show me around Princeton Cemetery as he sees it, to explain to me the meaning he finds among the gravestones. On our stroll, I found myself particularly curious about the etchings, symbols, and messages written on tombstones. What could it mean to leave a letter for eternity? I see right before us there's a Freemason symbol on this gravestone, and it's kind of the only thing left you can see. Uh, this this gravestone is clearly eroded and weathered so much that the, not even the name or the dates are visible. I think I see an 18, but you can definitely see the Freemason symbol long after everything else has been wiped away. It is fascinating, you know, what kind of ends up being preserved. You'll see older cemeteries that were particularly Masonic cemeteries or like this one, a particularly church cemetery. And that's obviously something that will last long beyond just the kind of individual graves. You see a lot of, um, like you said, religious connections, like just right there to our right, there's the wife of a pastor of one of the local churches, um, lots of crosses and those kind of symbols. Um, it is interesting. It is a very, um, you know, primarily Protestant cemetery. So it's mostly crosses and angels. If you go a couple blocks down to the cemetery behind St. Paul's, it's almost all the Virgin Mary. You see we have Jewish graves here and it's become much more religiously diverse since it was just the Presbyterian cemetery, um, as has Princeton more broadly. The inscriptions on these tombstones give us a glimpse on how ordinary people wish to be remembered. But finding the grave sites of notable individuals buried here in Princeton Cemetery can give us perspective on the way these figures and their followers or descendants hope they could shape their legacy in the history books. See Aaron Burr's over here that, you know, someone has come along later and decided to place a plaque saying this grave is of particular historical importance. We're placing a plaque here so that people know. And it's, you know, much later than any of the other graves. The original stone is eroded to the point where parts of it are only barely visible. Um, but there's an association, a historical association, that has placed a plate below it. Uh, Aaron Burr, born February 6th, 1756, died September 14th, 1836. And of course, whoever places the stone is the one who's deciding what you show. Mm -hmm. You Maybe see... He's a colonel in the Army of the Revolution and vice president of the United States from 1801 to 1805, which of course, neither of those things are the first thing we usually think of when we think of Aaron Burr. Um, we usually think of some more negative associations, so... You'd never know from Burr's tombstone that he'd killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel, or that he'd been arrested for planned sedition against the early United States, or that he participated in the enslavement of black people in the Americas. The tombstone is a selective obituary, a kind of billboard, asking you to remember this person in this way and this way only. And for those who don't have a historical association keeping up their stone, these billboards will fade. Other graves you'll see that are just family graves. You know, maybe the families are still here. They're keeping up the graves in good condition. Others, you know, the families haven't been here in a century, if, if that, and they've kind of fallen into disrepair just because that's what happens when you leave a stone out for this long. But beyond the messages on the tombstones, the deceased and their families leave a message by choosing where they lie and rest as well. Deciding where you are buried is kind of like a monumental way uh, for a person to indicate where they feel they should lie, right? Sometimes families will buy plots and they'll have members of their family, like for literal generations, for a century nearly, um, buried in a very close proximity. Other people you'll have just kind of buried in a particular kind of random plot that they happen to buy just with their spouse, or maybe their spouse and their children, or maybe just by themselves, um, or then the kind of 
weird spot we're walking to over here where the Princeton University presidents are buried, that they're buried here because they're Princeton University presidents, which is not really any kind of um, family relation. But what struck me most about the cemetery wasn't the history written on stones or the families arranged together. It was the beauty of a space designed for memory and contemplation. You'll often find old cemeteries like the one in Princeton in the center of town, near houses of worship and people's homes, because they weren't always considered scary places. They were places for people to engage with dead relatives, to ramble on a walk, or to sit at a picnic. Of course, originally cemeteries were often in downtown spaces, you know, churchyards, things like that. And once cemeteries start to fill up and cities get the idea that maybe having a lot of dead bodies in our city is not great for public health, they start moving cemeteries into places outside of the city and they create burial parks, essentially. They're these big parks. Um, you see this with like Greenwood Cemetery in New York City. Um, it's a beautiful rambling space. It's, it's a park. It's designed for people to come. Often people would come on Sundays after church and they'd come and have picnics on like their family grave plot, which is a wild concept to us. I'm assuming you know, you've never done something like that, most likely. I've never done something like that. Uh, the most that may happen is sometimes people have you know, picnics on Memorial Day or something like that. You know, usually that's not even in a family cemetery or anything like that anymore. The origin of the modern like American urban park movement comes from the rural cemetery movement. Uh, Mount Auburn Cemetery near Boston can be seen as like the archetype for the movement that would create Central Park in New York and Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. Understanding this history, that cemeteries were once seen as contemplative places for meditation and enjoyment, the question changes. It's not how do we rethink the cemetery, it's how do we undo decades of thinking that have made spaces of memory into spaces of fear. This is a place that has inspired Ben since his childhood. He clearly isn't scared. What broke his unease? I mean, I've always been in history since I was a little kid, you know, loved all kinds of you know, history books, all things like that. Um, and then when I was 11 or so, my grandfather gave me a book he had put together in the 50s of like kind of all his ancestors, things like that, that he had asked his parents about, you know, put that all together for a high school class or something or other. And he gave that to me and I thought, oh, this is really interesting. I can think about history, not just like, like there's a history to me too. There's a history to my family too. Here's people, you know, who lived their whole lives, you know, build a, build a family, build a community for themselves. You know, my family goes back in what's now West Virginia for basically 12 generations. So it's lived in, you know, basically picked some of the roughest country east of the Mississippi to build a community for themselves, build a life for themselves. I've got about a dozen coal miners in my ancestry. I had two ancestors who were uh, severely injured in mine accidents, ended up dying as a result. Um, so all sorts of stories like that. And through this historical exploration of his genealogy, Ben has found one particularly crazy story. I'll let him tell you though. My great, great, great grandmother fell in love with her farmhand and murdered her husband in 1876 and um, ends up in a lot of the local community history books for, look at this insane story that happened. Um, she ends up getting sentenced to life in the state penitentiary, dies there six years later of tuberculosis. Their daughter is my great-great-grandmother. Um, so kind of insane stories like that that connected to local history in fascinating ways and are intricately wrapped up with death <laughs> that I just found super fascinating, even from a kind of morbid curiosity kind of way. It isn't just a historical fascination, it's something deeply personal. To study the history of a cemetery in your community where your family has been buried for generations like Ben has, is in many ways a historical study of the self. Probably the cemetery that's most meaningful to me is where my mom's family is from, because there's probably six generations of my family just in that one cemetery, a little like couple acre plot in the middle of nowhere um, and my family has just lived and farmed there and mined coal and all sorts of things like that for generations and it's really powerful to me you know and it's somewhat difficult to explain of just kind of being there and seeing the kind of monuments my family has left for such a long period of time. So maybe it's time then to dig into some genealogy and spend some time with those who came before us but have now come to rest. It's time to sit with memory under the shade of a tree and by the pillars our forebears have left us. Their ending may be the only certainty, but it need not be one that fills us with fear. It can engage us through love and study, attention and contemplation, as we stroll beside them. For WPRB News and Culture, this has been Adam Sanders.
And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB Studios in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's producer, Adam Sanders. Tonight's show was reported, recorded, and produced by Clara McWeeny, Anna Salvatore, Catalina Posada, Natalia Maydeek, Navani Rachamalu, Malika J. Singh, Tommy Golding, Henry Moses, and yours truly, Adam Sanders. Our editors are Hannah Lee, Clara McWeeny, Izzy Jacobson, Alan Plotz, and Henry Moses. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Ratatat. All of the music used is under Creative Commons license. Details can be found at our website at news.wprb.com. Can't get enough of news and culture? Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts, or at our website at news.wprb.com. That's news.wprb.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WPRB News. That's at WPRB News. WPRB News and Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton, community-supported, independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.